You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. This episode of Monster Talk deals with some explicit sexual topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. You've probably heard or used the word gargantuan to describe something large. Did you know that that word is a literary illusion? It comes from a set of stories by Francois Rabelais, about two giants called Gargantua and Pantagruel, first published in 1532. In these satirical stories, Gargantua, one of the giants, sets up a monastery of Thelema, and here is how it's described. In all their rule and strictest tie of their order, there was but this one clause to be observed. Do what thou wilt. Thelema means will. In 1904, a man named Aleister Crowley published what he claims to be divinely received wisdom as The Book of the Law, a publication which has become famously well-known by shorthand reference to its similar command, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. One work, a famous literary satire. The other, a holy book of the magical religion of Thelema. Make of that what thou wilt. In this episode, we're going to talk about a man who gave himself more titles than a 1970s Italian horror film, including The Beast 666. His real name was Aleister Crowley. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Dog. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. We're almost finished with my currently planned series on magic. I still want to talk about Jack Parsons and about Margaret Murray's book, The Witch Cult in Western Europe, but we'll be back to more direct monster coverage first. 
Though to be fair, there are many who would call the subject of this episode a real monster. We'll dig into some of the biographical material on Crowley in this episode, but if you check the show notes, there's some fantastic links if you're interested in seeing some contemporary coverage of his life. There's an interesting documentary from the BBC that was part of a four-part series called Masters of Darkness that covered Crowley in one episode. A fairly complete version of that's on YouTube, and I put links to that in the show notes. And there's a page with digitized copies of the tabloid coverage of his various exploits, some of which are shocking even today, or at least the claims are. He's famously been called the wickedest man in the world, and it seems to me like he would have just reveled in such epithets because infamy was as good as fame to him. He was a writer, a poet, a cult leader, and by many accounts, a total and complete bastard. In the documentary, a few career highlights show up. For example, he was a very good mountain climber, but then he had a scandalous episode where he allegedly refused to help his companions after an avalanche because of some falling out that they'd had. He bought a house on the coast of Loch Ness called Boleskine House and conducted a magical ritual there which was supposed to give him access to his guardian angel, but which required first to summon princes from hell. And then he didn't finish that ceremony, which led to rumors and legends about what failing to complete such a ritual could lead to. In the 1920s, he went to Sicily and started a church based on his religious teachings, but soon was deported because of the scandalous accusations that his cult had conducted bestiality, sacrifices, and some of the practices which had led to the death of one young member. He used up lovers and left them destroyed, and he spent much of his life enslaved by drug addictions. Yet somehow, he's seen by many as a kind of hero whose intent to harness the power of human will is despite the failings of the man who brought the teachings, a path to a fulfilling life. The problem I have with talking about Crowley, especially from a position of wanting to be historically accurate, is that I can't tell what portion of the stuff written about him is true and what is complete bullshit. It is deeply frustrating. The majority of the news covers ridiculous mishmash of rumors and allegations and is not very different from the news stories from tabloids today. I can tell you this, though. His influence after his death has grown because of the fascination that many in the entertainment business feel for him. Many musicians have referenced him. Ozzy Osbourne's song, Mr. Crowley, though it mispronounces his name, is just one example. Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin bought Boleskine House and owned it for several years and apparently owns a lot of Crowley's writings in addition to many other magical tomes. Crowley influenced other magical thinkers as well and his religion lives on today. The counterculture of the 60s and 70s seemed to consider him a natural fit, though very little of Crowley's life comes across as particularly groovy. But let's get on to this interview, which is the third and final part of my interview with John L. Crow. Hopefully, across these three episodes, we will have provided some context to understand what was going on in the world to produce a man like Aleister Crowley. Monster Dog. Great. Okay, so in our previous discussion, we were talking about... Um, the rise of esotericism and occultism in Western civilization. And we talked about theosophy and uh, briefly about the Golden Dawn. And our, our goal here is to guide into a discussion about Aleister Crowley. And uh, so let's, can we, maybe could you give us a few biographical details about him and then how he gets involved in this movement? Uh, sure. The, he grew up, um, very upper middle class. His his father uh, had a, a beer brewing business, Crowley Beer, and he basically had a, a a strict environment because although his 
parents uh, were brewers, they were part of a very conservative Protestant denomination called um, the Plymouth Brotherhood. A quick editorial correction. It's actually the Plymouth Brethren, and a link to more information about them is in the show notes. And they stopped him from being able to uh, participate in normal childhood activities with toys and playing with uh, friends and all of these uh, things that we've we come to expect uh, children do for normal socialization. Uh, instead, he had a, a more tumultuous of an experience. He was very dedicated to his father, and his father died when he was young. Um, that caused a financial and social crisis within his family. He ended up living with uh, some relatives he had negative experiences with, and then went off, uh, was went to school, and again had negative experiences there. So he had a very difficult childhood, um, and through that he came to identify a lot of it with Christianity. So he he started to rebel against the the kind of Protestant strict religion, and instead he said, well, if the Plymouth Brotherhood were about um, God and Jesus rejecting the devil and being very conservative, I'm going to do the exact opposite. I'm going to embrace the uh, diabolic, and I'm going to embrace hedonism. And so we could see by the time he is in um, college that he is indulging this lifestyle. He's starting to become educated in philosophy and science. He also has an interest in poetry, uh, in literature. He is also interested in theater. So he's becoming very well-rounded, uh, getting a very good education that, the, um, that his economic status allowed. And so... Uh, he ultimately rejects graduation, um, becomes a poet, uh, and gets involved in various kinds of activities. And one of them is the Golden Dawn. So through um, a friend, he is introduced to the Golden Dawn, um, and he attends. And he's by this point, has a very significant interest in esoteric subjects, occultism. Uh, and we should also look at the timeline with theosophy beginning in 1875 and spiritualism, mesmerism, new thought, all of these traditions um, being established or coming into being, it was a very potent environment for him to take, um, take these ideas and run with it. So he's encountered these esoteric and occult ideas from a variety of places, including um, the Kabbalah and so forth. So when he's introduced to the Golden Dawn, he's very, very apt, very eager, um, and he begins to excel in the Golden Dawn. It's also here, after a couple of years, that he meets Alan Bennett, who was considered the second best magician in the Golden Dawn, um, next to Mathers, one of the founders, and they get along very well. Crowley sees an opportunity because Bennett is comes uh, he's very ill and comes from a very poor family. Um, Crowley says, "Look, if you give me 
teachings and magic, I will, uh, you know, put you up and, and give you a place to live and uh, give you resources so that you can practice magic. And so they do. They get a flat. And, uh, and so we see in 1899, they're living together. Crowley is getting lessons from Bennett and uh, Bennett's health is is on the mend to some degree. So uh, it worked out very well for them in these last 1890s. Uh, but already here, we see that Bennett had an interest in Eastern traditions. He was a member of the Theosophical Society uh, early in the 1890s. Um, and so eventually, Bennett will leave the Golden Dawn. And in that same time frame when Bennett leaves in 1900, uh, Crowley is uh, worked his way up to the Inner Order. Um, but the members of the Lodge don't want him to enter the Inner Order. Uh, and so there we have this huge personality conflict. But this is – he's coming out of a, a position of being uh, upper middle class and from a, a, a university time period, right? So so he's already – he's like a seeker and seeking education in, in a classical sense at the same time. Is that what we're saying? Well, he definitely was interested in being educated and and he was very well read. He had access to uh, lots of uh, learning resources even before going to college. But uh, I mean, he was coming from an environment that stressed education. Uh, so he was very literate. He, he read a lot. Um, and he, while in college, he had access to philosophy and the sciences and, and literature. So he was participating in various degrees in both humanities and what we would consider uh, STEM stuff. Um, I mean, uh, within the context of, of the end of the uh, 1900s. Right. But, uh, but he was absorbing these ideas and, and really expanding them because he wasn't limited in, a, in an ideology that uh, said that there's no connection between these humanistic ideas and these scientific ideas. He was, he was looking at them as part of a whole. And so one of the things that encumbers people in thinking about stuff today is they think, oh, I don't need humanities. I'm, I'm doing STEM. But they don't understand that minds and the world around us aren't categorized in kind of the disciplines. The way things manifest are, and influence and um, feed on one another um, are, are a lot more fluid. And, and so the boundaries that we create discipline-wise um, sometimes inhibit thinking. He was not participating in that. In fact, he was participating in a very unbounded thinking. Uh, so he would include esoteric knowledge and occultism along with literature and, and science. And they were all one big mix of ideas, influences uh, that he had no problem pulling together. So he's also, um, I, he's a, he's at least bisexual, right? I mean, uh, I'm a little. Well, I, th I think, I think it's hard for us to deal with the fluidity of his sexuality yes. using today's terms. Again, we very much are uncomfortable with uh, things being undefined. So we have since uh, uh, since the uh, sexual revolution and feminism and all of this um, 
exposure to a variety of human sexual um, preferences, sexual practices, uh, sexual modalities, people want to break it up into various kinds of categories of gay, lesbian, bisexual, queer, transgender. That's fine. But when you start projecting those categories back into a time period in which they didn't exist, it becomes a little more dicey. What we do know is that Crowley had love, emotional love for men and women, and that he participated in sexual activities with men and women. Now, some people want to say he's gay and that he really wasn't into women or that he was bisexual or those debates in, in many ways, fine, if that's what people, the direction they want to take it. Uh, but in some sense, those categories are not helpful because they're, they're trying to bring in the uh, reel in or, or bracket or close down um, his sexual activity. And the fact is, he participated in a lot of different kinds of sexual activity with different uh, people of different genders. So let me, let me, he, I guess let me ask it this way. So I think one of the challenges uh, I, I have is uh, a modern, uninitiated uh, uh, reader or, or in, an interested party. I don't really know what to call myself. I, I'm curious about all this as it relates to magic. So a lot of times when I read about this stuff, it's Crowley participated in sexual rituals for magical purposes. And I don't know how that actually plays out as opposed to sexual encounters for merely hedonistic purposes or as part of long-term relationships. There's all these different ways to sort of categorize sex acts. But I'm curious about how sex magic works because i keep seeing that phrase sex magic and sex magic rituals i have no idea what it means i don't understand what you know is that like the magic is released through orgasm i really don't understand it all so like if if you have any insight to that i would really be curious about what that means well sex magic has a, a large variety of manifestations and if you think about what are the areas of human activity that have the most intensity, emotional connection, uh, if you want to talk in terms of energy, um, build up the most, um, the largest pools of, of energy and engagement of an individual or individuals, and that would certainly include, if not be um, led by, sexuality. And so participation in sexual activity in a ritual context is simply using the various methods of sex engagement. Um, That could be anything from masturbation to intercourse um, of both um, men and women or uh, women together or men together or as a group of varying genders. All of these kinds of techniques are means to... Uh, move consciousness or move energy or to consecrate um, an object uh, to one's wills or desires or to create a context for 
uh, gnosis or access to a transcendent knowledge. So it, it really depends on what the goals are of the participants. Um, it could be as mundane as you want something done. Uh, you create a talisman for it, and then you focus your will and notions about that and, and participate in uh, masturbatory activities. And then with climax or um, something coming from that, uh, bodily fluids, those that consecrates the talisman. It could be as uh, extensive as um, individuals participating in group sexuality and using bodily fluids or orgasm or the energy from it to consecrate things or to uh, get an individual or parti multiple participants in a state of consciousness that are receptive to mystical experience or knowledge. Uh, it, it's just there's all kinds of different ways that um, it can participate. And some of the examples for Crowley and his um, sex with Victor Newberg is – uh, they had sex in the desert for during their times in which they were doing Enochian um, works and scrying in the ethers. And so they would use sexual intercourse to get Crowley in a uh, mystical state and so that he was more receptive and could participate in uh, scrying of Enochian ethers and so forth. Uh, so there's a, a large variety of activities uh, that manifest sexually and and. Sex magic is basically harnessing those activities uh, for magical ends. Interesting. So I, I, it reminds me of uh, we did an episode on homunculus uh, mm -hmm. and the concept of uh, trying to create some sort of life uh, with a single person. It's typically, the way I've read it is a male, right? So I don't, I don't know if there's any uh, rituals for making a female-based homunculus. But yeah. But uh, but there are there are rituals of sexual intercourse between men and women to create uh, a homunculus, and if you think of uh, the the climax at a moment in which the male and female are come together, preferably in simultaneous climax to create the uh, material basis, uh, which then can be used as the uh, the grounding for the creation of a spiritual being. Um, one that the goal of that spiritual being's existence is the culmination of the um, the will of the participants. Yeah, and I, I think that's, uh, that'll tie into some stuff we'll be looking at in the future, uh, at least some of the stuff alleged to uh, have been the right, goals the of Jack Parsons, child. for example. Right. Yeah. So. That's exactly what's, what Jack Parsons was, was doing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. It, it's it's really interesting. So the these uh, but now do you know this the, this is this part of Eastern religion or is this part of uh, Eastern tradition or is this part of something that's come out of uh, these esoteric movements that they claim is part of an uh, Eastern tradition that's not? I, I I'm finding it hard to kind of reconcile what is uh, absolutely you know being repurposed and what's uh, being sort of created. Uh, ad hoc uh, to for these uh, other movements. I'm not really sure how to word that exactly. But does it make sense? Like, what's, yeah. what's legitimately part of Eastern tradition that they're repurposing and what is maybe just created from their own interest in trying to get these results? We don't know. 
the the difficulty is first of all if you're talking specifically about sex magic uh, we're talking about a time period where people don't talk about sex that often and when they do they talk in veiled terms um, so what is Eastern and what isn't Eastern um, really comes down to the claims of people and uh, there certainly are claims that the knowledge that they have on, uh, for instance, somebody involved um, in spiritualism and um, the Hermetic Brotherhood of uh, Light and um, uh, P.B. Randolph, he was a um, mixed race uh, spiritualist who also claimed to travel um, in the Middle East and become initiated and had sex magic rites and um, used uh, hallucinogenic uh, substances like um, uh, hashish as part of magical ritual. Those those claims are, are, are made or similar ones by other people. We don't know. It is certainly not part of the um, exoteric practices of Eastern religions. Um, probably the one uh, exception are... Um, high-level tantric practices that participate in sexual intercourse in um, tantric um, Hinduism and tantric Buddhism. Uh, but what people miss there is that the goals of those um, intercourse participations is not orgasm. In fact, orgasm would be considered failure in tantric practice. Instead, the goal is to maintain engagement in the sexual activity while building up energy and then taking that energy and using it for other means versus releasing it in orgasm. So when, when Westerners talk about Tantra, they usually have it very, very wrong in terms of uh, its resemblance of Eastern practice. That doesn't mean Western forms of Tantra are wrong. Uh, they're just different. Um, and that's, that's the one thing that we should also keep in mind when we're looking at origins or looking for origins um, in some cases, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, this is the, the, what this teaching is from this group and uh, what they, where they got it from could be invented, could be an amalgam of different sources or both. Uh, in some sense, it doesn't really matter. What matters is what they do with it and, uh, and what they claim about it. So I, so I didn't want to take us down too big of a rabbit hole. Yeah. But, uh, I, I am. I, I was just very curious about that because I, I read a lot uh, in preparation for these interviews and uh, nothing really broke it out very specifically. I was a little curious about what was sex magic and sexual ritual is an easy thing to say, but that's a broad category. That could be a lot of things. So I didn't really know what was under the hood. <laughs> it, it, it really is broad and there it is multifaceted and there are some scholars um, who have spent a lot of time looking at this and looking at esoteric traditions and the transmission of um, various kinds of sex-related religious practices and spiritual practices. And um, it, 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 I don't claim to be one of those specialists, so I don't want to uh, go too far down that subject. I think they would be better people to have on your show. But there, there is a lot there, and, and it is very interesting, and it would... Uh, and it does touch a lot on uh, particularly Crowley uh, and the OTO and also the other organizations in which Crowley participated in his AA and his magical teachings and subsequent uh, students. Because Crowley was one who was adamant of uh, positive uh, 
correlation between magical practice and sexual activity. Whereas on the opposite side, someone like Blavatsky uh, insisted on celibacy. So no sexual practice of any kind, including no masturbation, so that the person remains pure and focused and is not distracted by lust, sexual desire, or physical um, engagement of sexual acts. And so you'll actually see people within theosophy who are married uh, stop having sex or people getting married and uh, having celibate marriages or not even getting married ever because they don't want um, to participate in that kind of activity. And Blavatsky herself claimed never to have consummated her two marriages. Huh. I, uh, I've been married for like 18 years. Uh, I think our anniversary is tomorrow. So <laughs> it's not my way. Okay. <laughs> It's like no, honey. It's uh, abstinence for sexual uh, magical powers. Totally cool. So yeah, I don't think I could sell that. So <laughs> you know, most most people can't. And in, in Theosophy, what they said, especially during the time of Blavatsky, was, you know what? That's okay. Uh, get married, and and participate the best you can. Just understand that your inability to discipline yourself in that sexual sense means that in this lifetime, you are not going to reach the highest levels of spiritual development. Oh, well, I guess it's the price I have to pay. What? <laughs> but on the other side, you know, you, you get people who are practicing Crowley's system who's like, you're never going to get to the highest levels of spiritual development unless you participate in certain forms of sexual activity. That's, so yeah. uh, it really just depends on the, the system and, and you know what, what its view on the body and desire and all of these kinds of things are. And that's why focusing on questions on uh, the body and how the body is constructed and the use of the body in a magical and esoteric practice becomes uh, really helpful in kind of getting into the ideas that are underlying it. Because if the body is bad, then all the wants and needs of the body become demonized, i.e. sexual intercourse. Whereas if the body is seen as ultimately good and is your connection to the world, then things of its needs and its participation in the world through sexual activity and other activities, then those are inherently good. So notions of the body, its construction, and the overall orientation to it um, becomes a prime indicator of what the ideologies of that organization or that system are. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, 
and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Yeah, so with Crowley, he's over the course of like since he's he's left us, um, he he's gotten this sort of legendary status. He he shows up in pop culture. You see him in uh, the the was it Black Sabbath or just Ozzy Osbourne the Mr. Crowley song? I think that's uh, he's, although he says Crowley, uh-huh. but I think that's wrong. Um, yeah, no, it is a Black Sabbath song. He also uh, shows up in uh, I think. I mean, there's lots of groups. Uh, I, I mean. Black Sabbath and Ozzy um, are the most obvious, making a reference to him. But but, but Jimmy Page uh, is a huge fan. Jimmy Page mm-hmm. goes on to buy uh, Boleskine House uh, mm-hmm. and owns that for a while, which is where Crowley did some of his rituals. And right. so he's got this huge, maybe outsized pop culture presence outside of the, uh, uh, the direct... Uh, uh, religious uh, side of him. So, like in one sense, most people know him as a, as sort of this uh, dark figure in uh, Western culture, uh, and I, I think that's only dark in contrasted with uh, uh, Judeo Christian views, right? I mean, I don't know how dark he is within magical tradition. Um, well, well, I don't. I you know, it's funny because he did participate in and publicly announced his engagement in various kinds of sexual activities, uh, various kinds of magical practices and so forth. And you're right, by uh, more traditional or conservative uh, Judeo-Christian morality, these things are seen as bad, which is also why he got you know the, the yellow journalism label of the most wicked man. Um, but one has to wonder when you start stacking up what he did uh, in a larger context to people who have uh, participated or um, engineered genocide. Uh, and sadly, in the 20th uh, century, we've had many um, political leaders um, cause uh, or or facilitate genocide. Um, in comparison to that, I, I, I don't know how, how wicked he is. He never killed anybody. He never uh, caused the death of uh, groups of people or caused, um, you know, whole territories or whatever to be destroyed or um, mass incineration of, of human beings. Right. It's, it's almost comical uh, to say it compared to some of the sort of things that happened in the latter half of the 20th century. Right. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. To say you're the wickedest man in the world and, uh, it, you know, basically that goes down to, you know, breaking uh, as many of the commandments as you can, that sort of thing. That, uh, you know... Uh, within that context, yes, wicked, but within the sort of, I don't want to get into like moral relativism, he, right. as you point out, he did not uh, kill millions of people. Uh, he, he didn't so, cause giant economic damage to people. Uh, he, he, he just, uh, he, he. I, I, I would go so far to say that if you looked at what happened uh, over the, over a weekend in Hollywood, uh, sex with multiple partners outside of marriage, of both genders, 
uh, indulgence in magical rituals and inclusion of drugs and alcohol. Yeah, that happened. (laughs) So, I mean, that's what he did. Okay, at the time, that was so, you know, taboo that, yeah, he, he got that kind of label. But, I mean... In, in the modern world, I don't know if it's good or bad. Some might argue either way. Uh, but that kind of activity that got him that label is is so common these days. Right. I, I think we've talked about it on the show before and I, on the conversation we had outside of this inter- interview. The My belief that if he were alive today, uh, he would fit right in with the sort of Kardashian social media world. He liked to be in the newspaper. He seemed to like to sort of manage his image quite a bit. So... Um, he did. Well, he, he did early on. Um, I think, you know, as he got older, uh, and we have to remember, this This is a guy that had a, a public presence for decades. It's not like he was a, a shot in the dark who kind of appeared in the, in, in, in you know, the early 20th century, was a, a, a figure of the moment and then disappeared. Uh, he was in the public eye uh, across both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, in the English-speaking world for uh, decades. Uh, his activities, his writing, his books, his painting, his all of these, uh, his theatrical uh, activities and his ceremonial magic and his political ideas, all of that were, were continually being discussed in uh, the newspapers uh, of his day. And so we have decades of his exposure, and and he was very sensationalistic, uh, very media attention uh, grabbing in his twenties and early thirties. That I think later in his life he he found became more of an impediment to uh, his spiritual teachings or the goals that he had as being a a religious prophet uh, were were hindered in many cases by the image and persona he had put forward in his younger years. So most of our listeners are going to know, uh, let do what thou wilt be the whole of the law, right? They're going to know that line. But what mm-hmm. what exactly does that mean, and what was the goal of his, his breakaway religion, the OTO? Well, first of all, the OTO existed before Crowley. Okay. This was, this was one of those fringe Masonic groups that was started. Uh, it was started in Germany. Um, there's a number of uh, founders, and w- probably the most prominent is uh, Royce and then Kellner. And so they had this very uh, underdeveloped um, Masonic group. And one of the things that they included in it was um, sex magic. And so when Royce became acquainted with Crowley, he offered Crowley the opportunity to be head of the OTO of the English-speaking world. And Crowley accepted. And so uh, within that context, Crowley had already uh, received his prophetic uh, channeling of a book of the law. Um, now, the context in which it was received is frequently debated. It, it, he claimed basically that there was a preternatural presence who dictated it to him while he was in Egypt 
and that this took place over the course of three days. Um, but again, the details of this change slightly over time, um, and so it, it's not worth getting bogged down in it. In the English-speaking OTO, he adopted his book, The Book of the Law, as a foundation of the English OTO. He reworked the initiations that he got to include this book of the law, which uh, has a system he called Thelema, which means will in Greek. And so it is within that context he started propagating the ideas of Thelema within the OTO. But he also started another group, um, one modeled very much after the Golden Dawn, uh, and even preceding his involvement with the OTO that he called the AA. And what that AA stands for is uh, variable and depends on people's levels of initiation and knowledge. So um, it, it, I, I won't even, again, go there. Each one of these subjects can become very, very deep and take uh, a, a long tangent. Uh, but that one was very much a Thelemic uh, initiatory group where he's taking the Golden Dawn system, taking Thelema and his ideas about magic that developed. Uh, and that's the one that uh, the, these two groups are, are de uh, evolving um, independently, uh, but overlapping in the sense that the memberships of one are frequently also in the other. And so the, so there's no church of Thelema per se in the OTO, because the OTO is a Masonic group um, doing Masonic-like rites. You have your magical group, the AA, and eventually Crowley also participates in um, getting uh, ordained within the Gnostic Catholic Church. And we should also understand that just as there are all of these fringe kind of Masonic groups uh, within the notions of apostolic succession, um, coming out of the church, there's all of these apostolic groups. And for people who don't know what that is, is uh, according to the Roman Catholic Church, Jesus appointed Peter to be the person that the church is founded on, Cephas the Rock. And so all of the bishops that come out of the Catholic Church be, uh, go through a, a, a physical laying on of hands that put them in what is called apostolic succession. And so there's this long, continuous chain of uh, making people bishops and that there was a physical interaction between two people, one that had that interaction previously and the new one who has that one. And once that's done, it can never be undone. But there have been people who were in the church, got apostolic succession, but then were thrown out of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, they still have apostolic succession. They were they were bishops, and they theoretically can pass it on, and they do. So you get these lines of apostolic succession outside of the Roman Catholic Church. The Church frowns upon this, but they can't deny the continuity of these lines. Um, and the participants document it, you know, saying so and so consecrated so and so at this date and this location, etc. But, but then you have other people who are claiming they were consecrated without any documentation. And then finally, you also have uh, systems of apostolic succession in which it doesn't trace itself to the Catholic Church, but it traces itself to a mystical experience of where Jesus um, appears 
and gives somebody apostolic succession and restarts a line that was either lost or didn't exist. And one of those lines is the Gnostic Catholic Church, and there's a mystical experience that a, a French person has, and uh, they start a line, and and so you get this kind of convergence of all these different lines. And by the way, I'll uh, point out one of these kinds of restarts is also in found in Mormonism. So this is another tradition that has the priesthood of the Machisaldic, but that one was reconstituted by Jesus to um, Joseph Smith. So this is not an uncommon practice. It is one, though, that you, you either have it within or outside of the church. And so we see it happening to Crowley, and he creates the Gnostic Catholic Church. And I'll also note that the old Catholic Church, which is another Gnostic one, was integrated into theosophy with Leadbeater, and they created the liberal Catholic Church through that Gnostic progression and that exists today. I've heard of that. And I didn't know what it was. Okay, that's interesting. So you have the this connection again with this fringe apostolic succession and these Gnostic churches. Uh, and there's numerous Gnostic churches that exist today that are arising from claims of apostolic succession coming either from lines coming from the Catholic Church or through these other kinds of mystical experiences. So there are three independent things ultimately with Crowley, the OTO, his AA, and the Gnostic Catholic Church. And all of them incorporate Thelema in some way or another. So what's Crowley's goal with Thelema? What's he trying to accomplish here? He's trying to spread it as a, a world religion. Okay. And then and, and, what's it like? I mean, what, what, are, what are the tenets of Thelema? What, what is, how does it compare to other religions? Well, the, the first thing that is at the core of Thelema is it accentuates the individual over the group. And this is actually one of the things that is very hard for a lot of people to accept about that tradition, is that the individual is empowered to the level that their spiritual will, their goals, their reason for being trumps everything else. So if you look at most religious systems, it's about the, the religion itself and the, and the individual sacrificing themselves, their will, their desire, turning it over to God's will or something like that. Crowley being someone who was very um, interested in exemplifying the individual uh, has a system in which the individual comes first. So the individual's will, their goals, what they're trying to accomplish in their lives and, and on a spiritual, transcendent, Gnostic, or even just mundane level um, becomes the first and foremost consideration. That's why it's do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, right? It's that will of the individual is totalizing. Everything else is subsumed within the will. Now, it may actually be the will of the individual to make sacrifices, to s subvert what they want to the good of a group. But they have to make that choice. It's not an assumed. And it's not a system that says if you're being selfish and putting the self first, then you're bad, right? That's, that's how it is in, in so many other 
Abrahamic tradition, right. right? Individual has to subsume to the will of God or the group. Crowley is the opposite. And, and so that, that's the basis of do what thou wilt. Now, that doesn't mean do what you want, because doing what you want is, is a very kind of whimsical um, influenced in so many different ways, right? You'll, you're sitting there and watching TV and an ad comes on for some type of uh, food or sweet or some activity or something like that. And you're like, ooh, that looks good. Oh, I want to do that. I mean, that's, that's what want levels are at. Will is a much more fundamental uh, basis. It's the core of what you are and what you are living for. Um, it's, it's much more uh, subtle. It's more philosophical, and it's not so obvious. And so the rest of the system um, is to understand what your will is. So ceremonial magic is part of that process of discovering what your will is. And uh, part of that system is there is a uh, being or entity of some kind named, uh, or, or that he calls the holy guardian angel. Um, and the nature of that angel is, is frequently debated. Sometimes he talks about uh, the angel as being a separate entity. Sometimes it's the higher self. Uh, sometimes it's both. Um, so it's, it's not clear to those outside but supposedly those who have encountered their um holy guardian angel that that duality or that confusion is is cleared up um and that being helps guide you um as you come to understand what your will is within that context this would be something that would be unique to each participant they would they would get their own personal guardian angel if they wanted to go through that ritual is that right? They, they don't get one. They have one. They have one. Okay. Uh, but that doesn't... To contact it. Right. Now, that could be contacting the higher self, like some portion of the their consciousness that exists on a higher spiritual plane. Uh, that could be contacting uh, an external entity. Um, at one point, uh, Crowley identifies the being that dictated the Book of the Law to him as his holy guardian angel. Um, so is that being part of his mind? And did he uh, write it in a trance nature? Or is it a separate being that was in the room with him um, dictating it to him? Uh, these are some of the debates about uh, the context in which the book was received. What kind of what year was this that he sort of put this together and published? The book was received in 1904. Okay. Uh, but he didn't do anything with it for a few years, and in fact, he misplaced it for a while. Uh, and later he found it around 1907, and it was then that he realized it had greater spiritual import than just some kind of trance writing. Um, and that's when he started building his systems around it. So the first one was the AA, and then later the OTO, and, and then the Gnostic Catholic Church. Interesting. So ultimately, over the course of his life, uh, he uh, he had published several works. Uh, he tried to build up uh, these groups. What ends up happening? Like, like are, are all these groups that he started, are they all still extant? Or did some of them survive, some not? Or how is, what's his legacy looking like now? 
Well, I, I think you could look at his legacy in, in a lot of different ways. Uh, his influence as a whole is, is pretty tremendous. Uh, he's looked at for his rebelliousness. He's looked at for his literary skill um, in both his poetry and his writings of novels and short stories. He's looked at as a kind of um, spiritual renegade or libertarian or um, hedonist by some. So they see him as a model of uh, rejecting the status quo and the system uh, and instead making one's own way. Some look at him as a painter. Um, most recently, some paintings of his has been discovered, but he also, um, during a period that he uh, lived in Germany, in Berlin, that he did an art show there. Um, so there was a number of uh, different ways that people look at him uh, and become inspired by him. Uh, definitely within the, the arts, uh, he's an inspirational in film, dance, music, literature, um, visual arts. Uh, he's referenced quite frequently. Um, but then also these groups, they all exist today. Um, some uh, exist in a multiplicity. So there's lots of groups that call themselves the um, AA. There's a few groups that call themselves the OTO. Uh, and so there are conflicts within their community of participants who argue about the legitimacy of uh, any one group or another. And then you also have uh, the Gnostic Catholic Church, which continues. Uh, and there are those uh, who participate in the Gnostic Catholic Church outside of the OTO context. Um, and since uh, the late 20th century, the Gnostic Catholic Church within the OTO, uh, although they were independent, the memberships were overlapping, and at uh, one point they were combined. And so there's a confluence between participation in the OTO and its initiatory degrees also necessitates, even in, um, nominally, uh, participation in the Gnostic Catholic Church. And so that as you go through the initiations, you're actually being initiated in the OTO as well as receiving titles within the Gnostic Catholic Church. Interesting. So ultimately, uh, within his life, when he passes away, what was his status at that point? Was he uh, like well-revered was he doing okay financially or was he struggling or like you know i i in the sort of classic not not talking about from a spiritual perspective but just from like a uh how well was he being taken care of at the end of his life was 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 he successful in in that sort of a capitalistic perspective like where was no okay. not at all okay he he basically died um living in a small rented room um of a person's house um in in England, um, relatively poor. Um, he would get visitors, but his organizations were in uh, shambles, if they even existed at all. Um, he was trying to find people to carry on his legacy. Uh, he was somewhat successful. He did have a successor in the OTO, a guy named uh, Carl Germer who continued the OTO and the AA. Um, Germer was much more interested in the uh, AA particularly. 
Um, as far as the EGC, he had some who participated and were interested in that. Um, and then there were a, a smattering of people who became involved and interested in Crowley's work towards the end of his life that uh, carried on his work after he passed away in uh, December of 1947. And what did he die of? Um, or do we know? I don't know it's it is known off the top of my head i don't remember okay. I, I think it was very um mundane just a, a normal kind of illness gotcha. like, uh, I'd, I'd have to look it up but something like pneumonia or something gotcha. like that it's um i mean it, one thing we should keep in mind is that he was a heroin addict uh for almost his whole life he did times uh, try to stop um Short periods of times, he was more successful than others, uh, but he was taking heroin um, up to his death, and uh, so a lot of uh, his his time, you know, was um, engaged in that kind of activity. Sure, sure. It, it's complicated too. I think when uh, there's so many of these rituals that involve opening up your mind with uh, drugs, uh, and uh, I. I gotta suspect if you use heroin that's uh it doesn't take much to get you completely addicted it's it's tough it's very yeah well i think another context that we have to keep in mind is at the time that he started using heroin it was legal and it was actually seen as a viable uh, medication for the treatment of asthma wow and that was a condition that he had and so heroin was prescribed it was only later when that ended and medical science saw you know the the repercussions of people who became addicted to heroin yeah. and the fact that it, it there were better solutions uh, that they stopped seeing it as a proper treatment but by then it was uh, the damage was already done yeah. to Crowley and, <laughs> and and who knows how many other people and then, Cocaine was also prescribed uh, for illness. And so the drugs that we think are uh, uh, illegal today and, and bad in some context or not, um, that's a relatively recent phenomenon. Right, right. Uh, and the impact of those drugs uh, was not well known until – in you know, well into the 20th century. Well, it's, it's important to remind listeners that heroin, heroin was a brand name. I mean, that's, <laughs> it, yeah. it was, it was, yeah, the, the, I've seen a lot of the uh, uh, packaging for heroin and cocaine being used in a variety of things, including Coca-Cola. Uh, mm -hmm. The coca part of Coca-Cola used to be from the coca. Uh, right, right. I mean, you could go to your pharmacist and pick up um, cocaine pills like nothing. I mean, they were cheap. Yeah. Amazing. Um, well, John, I wow. I, I feel like we could just keep talking about this, but I uh, I probably do need to wind down here. <laughs> there is a, a this is this will seem like an unsequitur, but for regular listeners, this is a, a thing. I, I try to ask people who come on the show uh, this one common closing question. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. What's your favorite monster? Uh, the creature from the Black Lagoon. Is it really awesome? Yeah, uh, yeah. I used to. Uh, I uh, my father was in the military, and I grew up in uh, for a period of time in during the elementary years 
in uh, Honolulu, and they used to have a creature double feature oh, on the weekends, nice. and they would do a Godzilla film and some other old, you know, horror film, and I just absolutely um, loved watching the creature from the Black Lagoon. Have you uh, managed to go see The Shape of Water? No, not yet. Oh, you should totally go see that. I think you'll get a real kick out of it. Uh, it's uh, it's not directly from that tradition, but it certainly has been heavily impacted. Uh, Guillermo del Toro does a, mm-hmm. a fantastic job. It's a great story, but it's one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen, but a great Gill Man. Uh, <laughs> so it's really, really fun. I think you would really get a kick out of it. So check it out if you get a chance. Will do. Will do. This is a good but thank you for having me on the show and uh, appreciate everybody's time in uh, listening. I really appreciate you taking the time. This is such a complicated topic, which I think people will have a, a pretty good handle on now. And uh, I, obviously I'll, ha- I'll have to edit this down just a little bit, but uh, uh, this is really good material. And, and thank you so much for helping us contextualize uh, the role of Crowley within uh, this larger esoterica uh, because as it fits in with this magical research stuff, I think it's uh, it's really important, and I don't think he's well understood. He's much more uh, commonly a, a pop culture sort of reference point than a a, a better understood uh, sort of figure within Western history. You know, so mm-hmm. I really I, I think you've, you've you're going to help people sort of clear some of that mystery up. I appreciate it. I'm I'm, I'm glad to do so. Thanks for having me on. Monster talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and today you heard an interview with John L. Crow about the life of Aleister Crowley. I hope you'll check out the links in the show notes at monstertalk.org, where there's a lot of information if you'd like to dig deeper into Crowley's strange but interesting life. He somehow got a reputation for outsized evil and wickedness, yet in a century that saw mass human eradication, carpet bombing, unlawful medical experiments, global wars, and nuclear bombs— Somehow his life, by comparison, seems almost quaint. But he sure seems to have messed up a lot of lives, including his own. Often we have higher aspirations than our ability or fortunes allow us to execute. I certainly see the appeal of a philosophy that talks about will. According to many interpretations, when Crowley said, Do what thou wilt, he was talking about living for one's true purpose, following your will with purpose, not doing whatever pops in your head, divining your true purpose. But despite the heroic stories we hear about loners with incredible force of will and how they accomplish amazing things, it always seems to me that when you dig a little deeper, more has actually been accomplished by the cooperation of people who share a vision than by individuals who seek credit and accolades. But this has been a show about Aleister Crowley, not his teachings. There are some links in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. But the opinions expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as the donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. 
Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music's by Peach Stealing Monkeys. As always, thank you so much for listening. Want to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit Skeptic.com to sign up. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.